As Doug mentioned, my name is Steve. Uh, my family have been coming here for about the last 18 months, so you may have encountered me making a coffee for you on a Sunday morning or potentially uh, looking after your youth on a Friday evening. But as Doug mentioned, I have spent uh, roughly about 12 years in pastoral ministry as well. But in our 18 months here, I think I've discovered the formula for a sermon at Restoration Church. You need to have a joke or a photo at the expense of one of the pastors, and I will be ticking that box. So I've sent that photo to Tom this morning. You make a bit of a dodgy comment, and then you invite people to respond by sending an email to elders at restorationchurch.com.au. You make a joke at the expense of Graham Kerr's age. Now, I know Tom's not here. He did say he'd listen to the recording. And Tom, I want to say, have some respect. Why would you want to put Graham offside when you might need to call upon him as a first-hand eyewitness to the passage he's got to preach on in a couple of weeks? And Pete Sondergold's famous classic sermon conclusion where you just go, that's it, I'm done. But all jokes aside, no, it really has been a blessing for us to be part of the Restoration Church family here, and it's been a privilege to be asked to share with you this morning. So this morning... My topic for our passage today, which if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 1. We're looking at verses 26 through to 38. The title for our passage, as you'll see on the screen, is Trusting the God of the Impossible. And before I start, I want you to think about trust for a moment. What makes someone or something trustworthy let me put this to you visually if you were going to do a trip around australia who would trust this car to be their vehicle no hands that's good i work in car insurance you would be the person who wants to put their hand up that's the person who's going to ring me when they're out in the middle of nowhere where there's no rental cars no repairs and expect me to sort that out but for the normal person, you look at that car, you make an assessment, and you say, that vehicle is going to fail. That vehicle is not going to do what I require it to do. And I'm sure if you were to attempt to drive the car, you'd soon experience that it is not worthy of your trust. Well, then give, give you another one. Who would trust this bloke to look after your kids? Now, for those, vi those visiting, that is a heavily edited photo of our youth pastor, Tom Bezel, where I've made him look older, fatter, put on some lipstick and grey hair with a bit of purple tinge. Even his dog feels uncomfortable being next to him in that photo. <laughs> but to be a little bit more serious, our ability to trust something or someone seems to boil down to this how likely we believe that thing or that person is going to fail. And the truth is, every single thing that we've known, every single person we've known, even the people closest to us, there is some degree of risk. But what if there was a person that we could be 100% certain that they would not fail? Should it be reasonable that we should be able to trust them 
Now, when it comes to God, failure is an impossibility. In verse 37, depending on your translation, it might say, nothing is impossible with God, or for no word from God will ever fail. In Psalm 115, the psalmist says, God does all that he pleases. In other words, whatever God decides he wants to do, because he has no no equal, he can just do whatever he wants. On God's desk, there just seriously is not a too hard basket. So as we consider the God of the impossible, I think it's important that we be careful that our thoughts aren't clouded by our experiences of an imperfect people. Because God is totally other than all of creation. In his character, in his dealings with people, in every possible way. So this morning we're going to look at an impossible encounter, an impossible blessing, a response to the impossible, and then we're going to look at what would it look like for you and I to trust the God of the impossible. So the impossible encounter. Now I'm not sure if any of you noticed me on the telly maybe back in May. I was at a little shindig that you might have heard of. Here's a little photo that I've got taken from there. Me there with King Charles there on the balcony, Buckingham Palace. I see a few smiles. There's a few doubting faces out there. You're doubting that photo's legit? Yeah, okay, Photoshop skills were pretty ordinary. But probably even if your eyesight was bad and you didn't realise that was Photoshop very badly, you'd say, there is no way that you, Steve Adams, would get an invite to that event. Because let's face it, in this world, only people with status get invited to places where there are people with status. And I think because we experience that day to day, some of us struggle with the idea that a perfect, almighty, holy God would want to have anything to do with people like you and I. But this is the God who says, my ways are not your ways. He is not like any person that you've encountered in this world. Now, last week, Pete took us through the opening parts of of Luke chapter 1. And that was the second appearance of the angel Gabriel, who appears three times in the Bible. Firstly, to the prophet Daniel to help him understand a particular vision. Then to Zechariah, the priest in the temple last week, where he's told about um, the son they're going to have, which was going to be John the Baptist. And you could be forgiven for thinking, God only reveals his plans and makes himself known to people of status. Because you've got a prophet, then you've got a priest in the temple. Now, all of that comes undone when you see the beginning of our passage from verse 26. It says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So by God's choice, he sends the angel Gabriel to Nazareth to Mary. Now firstly, Nazareth, it's not a significant town. As a matter of fact, it's so insignificant, it does not get a single mention in the Old Testament. 
And it was a town with a bit of a reputation. Like in John chapter 1, we see Nathaniel ask the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yet God is about to reveal the biggest news so far in his plan of redemption. And that news isn't coming and being announced in the temple. It's not even being announced in Jerusalem, but in this no-name town with the reputation of Nazareth. And the person to whom he's revealing it, it's not a priest, not a prophet, not a religious leader, not even a man, but a young girl named Mary, who in the culture at that time would have had very little to no status at all. To think back to the culture in which this was set, a woman's testimony was not considered credible witness to anything at all. A woman's word was worth nothing in that culture. Not only that, Mary was likely to be around the ages of 12 to 14 if she was being married at the same time as most people at that time. Now, because they tend to be arrangements that were made rather than waiting to find the right one, that's probably the sort of age bracket she may have been. Again, lowering her status, not from a significant family. And because of the way they viewed women, they didn't educate them. She was likely illiterate. Probably didn't have the greatest understanding of the scriptures. Maybe memorized some parts at home. Maybe heard some of the things the boys were talking at, the te temple or the synagogue. But in her culture, there is absolutely nobody who would have trusted her with any news at all. So let this sink in. It pleased God the Almighty to reveal himself to and bless richly this young girl that the world would have said was a nobody. This is an encounter that the world that she lived in would have said is an impossible, that God's got no time for you. Now, you might think the same, that it would be impossible, that God would even have the slightest thought for you. Maybe because of your status, maybe because of where you live, maybe because of things that you've done in the past. But our God's not like everybody else that you've encountered. He doesn't write people off over those sort of surface things that people around you may have done and said about you. In fact, what the Bible tells us is that while we were at our worst, God did his most to bless us. The Bible says while we were still sinners, while we were rebelling and hostile towards him, at that moment, Christ died to bring us back to God. Now, even Mary seems uncomfortable with the idea that God would have any interest in her. When we read verses 28 and 29, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Now, Mary's freaking out. But what freaks her out isn't the fact that an angel has just appeared and spoken to her. That would have got me. What freaked her out was she was extremely troubled because of his words, what he said. The words of he said that you are highly favoured, the Lord is with you. Now she's probably thinking, have you got your GPS coordinates out? 
do you know where you've come? You're in Nazareth. Do you know who I am? I'm just a 12 to 14-year-old girl of no status from nowhere town, and you're saying I am highly favoured. Now, through no fault of her own, Mary has been a bit of a polarising figure in Christian circles. And sometimes that comes around phrases like the one we've just seen, speaking of being highly favoured or full of grace. The issue isn't whether or not those expressions are true, and both of them are indeed true. The issue is, what does the Bible mean by them? The verb which is translated there as highly favoured is, in the Greek, a passive verb, meaning that it's not something that she has or she does, but something that has happened to her. So effectively, the angel saying, you who have received high levels of favour from God. The other title that's often polarising that gets spoken of Mary is the mother of God. And even Martin Luther, who, famous for his contesting things in the Catholic Church, was comfortable with the title. Not because he believes that Jesus gained his deity through Mary, not because he believes Mary was higher than Jesus or even equal to but simply for the recognition that the child that she gave birth to is God himself incarnate. In response to Mary's initial panic, the angel Gabriel does, as he often does when, when he comes to people, do not fear, and then reassures her, you have received favour. Our God defies all social and class boundaries. He makes himself known to the meek and to the lowly. This was an encounter that was impossible in the eyes of that world. But now the content of the favour that she has received is even more so. If Mary was uncomfortable being told that she has received great favour, if you were to ask her what that looked like, I reckon even the most wildest imagination she could come up with would have fallen far shorter than what it actually was going to be. She might have thought, maybe I'm going to win a signed Pete Sonderville book, and that's my prize. But as the angel starts to unpack how she has been favoured, it starts in a summary and it comes in increasing stages. Firstly, in verse 31, saying, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus. Now, she's probably thinking, that's a bit weird. I'm an unmarried girl, and you're telling me I'm going to bear a son, and his name is Jesus. But she doesn't question. She, she goes along with it. Now, that name Jesus does indeed mean saviour. And the passage that Doug spoke on a couple of weeks ago, we see the angels say to Joseph that you shall call him Jesus because he shall save a people from their sins. But Mary's unlikely to pick up on the full significance of that at that point in time. It was, after all, a common name. And even today, it continues to be a common name. In Chicago Airport, I got a pizza from Jesus. He was a Mexican guy. It was probably pronounced Jesus. And when he handed me that pizza, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but with cheese and other array of toppings. He didn't say that last bit. But as Mary's heart was racing, 
being told, you are going to have a son named Jesus, then it goes ramped up a little bit in verses 32 and 33. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, it's one thing as a young girl to be told, you're going to have a son. But to be told that the son that you are going to have is the most significant figure who has ever walked the face of this earth, that's a pretty big increase. That this son will be God himself. He will be the son of God. He will be the son of David, the long-awaited Messiah. That is a lot to take in for a teenage girl. I know teenage girls that can't cope with Instagram or Snapchat being unavailable for a couple of hours. So how does Mary react? She's just been told, you are going to bring the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, into this world. Well, she actually doesn't seem at all phased by it. We see something of her trust in God that she just, yep, I'll take that on. She's got a question. It's not a question of whether or not that will come true. She's got a question of mechanics, of biology, of how. She asks, how will this be since I am a virgin? Because Mary knows babies aren't like weeds. They don't just pop up when you don't expect them to. She's not doubting the outcome. She's just asking how. And Pete Milliken has kindly offered, if you've got any questions about where babies come from, he'll be available to take those questions after the service. Now, as Doug mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the word virgin, sometimes people will say that just means a young girl. And certainly the one used in verse 27 may be. But literally, the Greek says on this verse, she says, how will this be since I have not known a man? Now, the very question she's asking is about the mechanics. She doesn't have an issue with the outcome. But what seems perplexing at first about how, the angel just says with simplicity, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born, will be called the Son of God. There's nothing sexual about what's being said. Even that language of overshadowing, we see that used in the Old Testament of God's presence overshadowing over the top of the ark, of his presence in the temple, even in the New Testament at the transfiguration of God's presence. Put simply, the angel is saying, God, the creator and source of all life, will bring life into Mary's body. And just so there's no room for any doubt, he reminds her of two things. One, God's already been in the business of miraculous conceptions. The one that Peter spoke about uh, last week with, with Elizabeth and Zechariah. Even Zechariah the priest, he doubted. He's like, my wife's old. She's been barren. Yet Mary is being told that she now is pregnant. And the second confirmation is, you know no word from God will ever fail. Or some translations say nothing is impossible with God. You can know 
God can be trusted because every single thing he sets out to achieve, he achieves. So how would you respond to this news? How does Mary respond to this news? Think about the implications of the news that Mary has just heard. She's a young girl. She's not married. If she was pregnant, there would be great shame. According to the Old Testament laws, if you were betrothed, which is what she was, which is like engagement but far more binding than our engagement, and you were pregnant, both you and the man would be put to death. There's the question about what about Joseph? And on top of all of that, the responsibility of never having raised a child, your first child is going to be the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah. So how does Mary respond? She just says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. How's that for a response to all of that? She just says, yeah, no worries. If that's what God wants, I believe he can do anything he says. I'll take that. Not a single question like, okay, I'm in as long as you promise me that nobody's going to gossip about me for me being an unmarried pregnant woman. There's no question of, what about Joseph? Can someone at least let him in on the secret just so he doesn't leave me? There's no question of, how on earth am I supposed to raise the Son of God? She simply says, I am the Lord's servant. If God wants it, then I want that too, whatever the cost. Now, wouldn't that be beautiful if you and I had a faith like that? That whatever God says, we just simply say, if that's what God wants, I know he is perfect and good in all that he asks, that's what I want too. Because being in his will will always be abundantly better than all of the world's comfort and convenience. And God won't call a person to a task that he won't prepare them for. It's not like Mary had been in a preparation school of how to raise a son of God. She had no preparation. This was just flung on to her. She'd never heard anything about it coming. It just given to her on the spot. Yet she is 100% confident that God will not fail. And if you are a Christian, then our status, we are a servant of the Lord. We should respond, what God says, I want. Let it be fulfilled in me, even the hard stuff. And sometimes he does call us and he prepares us for the hard things, knowing that all of it's for my good and that he will prepare me and supply me with everything I need for that season of life. Because I know he's 100% trustworthy and he's always 100% good. Now, I think it's kind of sad when people avoid the mention of Mary. Because when I read a passage like this, I think, I really wish I was a lot more like her. Imagine if I trusted God like this. Imagine if all of us trusted God like this. But the question I want us to consider is what would it look for you and I to trust the God of the impossible? Firstly, I want to speak to those who maybe haven't yet trusted God at all. 
Maybe your idea of the impossible with God is that he would want anything to do with you. That he would even have a second thought for you. That he could love you. That he could forgive you. We've mentioned that God is not like the people you've encountered in this world. He's not the sort of person to write people off for fickle reasons about what they have done or what background that they've got. Part of the beauty of the passage that we've just looked at this morning is that God was pleased and he chose to make himself known and bless richly someone who the world would have said was an absolute nobody. Or think of Jesus' own prayer in John chapter 17. We've been going through John in restoration, so we'll get to chapter 17 in a couple of decades. Jesus prays for everybody who would come to trust in God. And he says, I pray that they would know that the Father loves them as much as he loves his own Son. And he says that knowing that many who will come to trust him are people who the world would say is no one. Yet he says, I want those to know that the Father loves them just as much as he loves his own son. So if your impossible of Christmas is that God would come to you, the message of Christmas is that he has. Jesus Christ coming into the world is God come to you. And it's not just so much that he has come, but he has come for a reason. Shortly we'll be singing the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. One of the lines that it says is born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. He was born into this world so that by trusting in him, we could be born again. The greatest Christmas miracle is not the virgin birth. As miraculous and wonderful as that is, the greatest miracle is who was born and why they were born. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and lay down my life as a ransom for many. That the Almighty God came into the mess of this world for the purpose to die a cruel death in order that he could reconcile the people back to himself. The author of Hebrews describes it in this way. He says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Just let that sink in for a moment. It brought Jesus joy to go through the pain of the cross because of what it would achieve to reconcile the people back to himself. It pleases God to come to those that even the world would say is not worthy. And so if that is your impossible, I want to let you know that is very much a possibility. And I'd encourage you, if that was the only thing that was holding you back, that you find someone you know who knows Jesus and have a chat about how you can come to trust in him. And secondly, for those who already have trusted, I want to remind you that God's blessings are not dependent upon your status either. If you are a Christian, Paul says to the Ephesians, you have received every spiritual blessing. Regardless of your background, regardless of how long you've been a Christian, you have received every spiritual blessing. Or the way Peter words it, he says, you've been given everything for life and godliness. 
So if you're a Christian, every single thing the Bible says of a Christian is yours. There is not tiers of Christians. There's not like a platinum members, a gold and a silver. The only status that works in God's economy is in Christ. Now you might say, well, I've never been blessed like Mary. No, she sings a song in verse 48 that all generations will call me blessed. And there's an extent to which you can say, yeah, you're not going to experience that. I can promise you that one. Of all the billions of women who've inhabited this world, she was the one and only one that God shows graciously to bear the Son of God into this world. But as amazing as the blessing of that was, I want you to look at something that Jesus said in chapter 11. As Jesus was saying these things, the woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And he replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. From Jesus' perspective, trusting in God is the greatest blessing you can ever have. By faith, we receive that blessing and all that he has. Because that's what trusting, that's what faith is. It's taking hold of what God has provided. Taking hold of what God has said to be true. And then we just respond just like Mary did. I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled in me. Taking him at his word, responding in trust. Because we know that every single thing that he says is an expression of his goodness. And we take hold of and experience that goodness when we trust him. In the good, in the hard, whatever the cost, there is blessing from God to be embraced. So as I say, I wish you all a blessed Christmas. It's that I hope that you would learn to come to trust and take hold of everything that he has provided for you. Let us close in prayer, then we'll get the, uh, the band to come up and we'll sing that last song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your ways are not our ways. Because, Lord, we too soon can bring to mind the things that people in this world have said about us. Yet we thank you that if we are in Christ, you have not held a single one of those things against us. In fact, you died on the cross knowing every single thing that we would ever do. We thank you that you are a God who is gracious and merciful, who makes himself known and loves to bless those even whom the world might say are a nobody. Lord, help us to culture a heart that says, I am your servant. Let your word be fulfilled in me, that we might know and experience your blessings. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.